All right. Well, good morning, you guys. I know y'all are wondering, maybe we're going to watch Frozen for the whole morning. I'm sorry to disappoint you guys. Uh, my name is Trey Corr. I'm the college pastor here at Grace. And I actually was just thinking of you guys. I was wondering the whole week, should I show the clip? Should I not? Are there any fans of Frozen here? I think the answer is obvious. Ross, they seem to be singing along more with Frozen than with you this morning, but don't take it. It's not personal, all right? But uh, I hope you guys are doing well. It is a joy to fill in with you guys this morning. I want you guys to know a little bit about myself. Uh, first of all, for you guys to know that uh, as a family of four, these are my two kids, Caroline, our four-year-old, and Colt, our two-year-old, almost two-year-old. And you guys need to know as a family, we are as indoctrinated in this whole Frozen thing as you guys, all right? So... Uh, it is common occurrence for me every morning before I leave for work, Frozen is being played soundtrack-wise in our home, all right? Every day when I come home, Frozen is being played in our house, all right? I have often thought about maybe tweaking the lyrics to, do you want to build a snowman, to, do you want to gouge out my ears, all right? So I, I've heard it so many times, and even the best things, if you hear them too much, it's a little too much, right? Uh, but in many ways, I'll tell you guys, our kids are so about this. So Caroline, as you can tell, is in her own little Anna dress, all right? We have coloring books. We have uh, the soundtrack. We now have a doll. I mean, we have it all, all right? Uh, even so, I was noticing a few, guys, a few, few of you all this morning as you're singing or kind of making the motions with Elsa. I mean, you know it all, all right? Uh, so even our own uh, daughter is, uh, has got the kind of the twirls and the spin moves down, all right? Our boy, who loves to mimic everything his uh, big sister does, is also doing the twirls and the dramatic, dramatic hand raises, which I'm like, we need to kill that, right? Uh, let's kill that now, all right? So, uh, but we are about as into Frozen as you can get, but I want to kind of pose you guys a question because you guys are singing along with the song. You know it in and out, all right? But have you actually listened to the lyrics, right? What does it actually mean to let it go? So I want to focus on that song this morning a little bit for you guys, all right? I promise you my goal is not to ruin Frozen for you this morning, all right? I promise I'll redeem this. But I want to submit to you guys that I think for a generation that is growing up, my kids' generation, they're going to grow up with some really dysfunctional understandings of handling conflict. If you guys have listened to the lyrics of Let It Go, I'm going to give you guys a few quotes just real quick. You guys know the words, but you maybe have not thought it through a little bit, all right? Elsa, as she bails from a conflict, is basically bailing to a place that she calls a kingdom of isolation, right? In which she's the queen. A place that she's going to run away and slam the door. A place that she says, I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me. I don't care what everyone else is suffering through, all right? Even more so, she says, fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all as she retreats to a palace of isolation where no one can get to her and no one can hurt her anymore. Lastly, she says toward the end of that song, I didn't play it for you guys, the last part, but she says, my soul is spiraling in frozen fractals all around, all right? This is one messed up, uh, jacked up girl who's got some issues, right? And her response to conflict is not the healthiest, But I'll tell you guys, one of the reasons why I love the movie is I think it hits on some really normal human tendencies that we all have to conflict, right? Every single one of us, in a sense, has a little bit of Elsa in us, right? Some of us are those that don't avoid conflict. We just steamroll right into conflict, and I don't care how people suffer. I'm going to win the argument. And then there are those of us who are not so much wired that kind of way, but we love to retreat. We love to avoid conflict. We get really passive-aggressive, right? Which is a little bit of Elsa too, right? Let me just pull away. I don't care how others are suffering, but let me just pull away and freeze them out in a sense. Not just so figurative, but frankly, in this case, literal, right? Uh, And so you have a whole generation of kids who are going to grow up on the playground, so to speak, and all they know is Elsa. That's what it's going to be, all right? Uh, But I want to submit to you guys this morning, where I want to take us this morning is I want you guys to think through about how you handle conflict specifically. What are often your normal instinctive responses to conflict? 
If you're anything like me, I know that many of the ways that I handled conflict in college were modeled and patterned for me in the family that I grew up in, right? And you guys have come from families, some of them are incredibly healthy, some of them are incredibly dysfunctional. But even in the healthiest of families have some really dysfunctional patterns in the kinds of conflicts that you saw and the kinds of ways that you learned to respond to it. And the reality is as you step into college, as you step into friendships in college, experiencing community, maybe at a level you've never experienced it before, you're importing those conflict behavioral patterns right into your friendships, right? Which is why maybe for some of you guys, you guys turn through friends like every season because you just can't deal with the conflicts, right? So you just substitute friends. You don't want to deal with it. And the reality is for, me to, for each one of us too, the very patterns that we have that we saw as a family growing up that we bring into our friendships in college are going to be the very patterns, I promise you, that you will import into a marriage one day if the Lord is so kind, right? That's the reality of where you're headed. So what I want to do this morning is we begin to think through this whole issue of conflict. And I want to ask you the question is how do we in a godly manner respond to conflict? And the beautiful thing about even Frozen is that Elsa will respond one way by the beginning of the movie, but by the time we get to the end of the movie, we see a whole different response, and we see a maturity of those characters through the movie, right? It ends in a very different kind of way. Well, this morning, if you have your Bibles, I want you guys to open to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We're going to be continuing in on our series of the life of David. Uh, for me, it's been an incredibly fun, dynamic series. I've loved it. I hope you guys have been enjoying it as well. 1 Samuel chapter 24, ironically, maybe not ironically, right? Uh, but in 1 Samuel chapter 24, we're going to find David, in a sense, in a kingdom of his own isolation, all right? David, who has been, in a sense, on the run. We talked about that last week. We've seen David in some really high moments. We've seen David in some really low moments. David is going to be on the run, running for his very life, right? We saw last week that Saul was trying to kill him. We saw him lose his best friend. We saw him lose his wife. We saw him lose his job. We saw him lose a prophet. We saw him lose every element of dependency around him. And he ran to the caves, He ran to hide out, in a sense, to get away to his own kingdom of isolation so he didn't have to deal with anyone else's junk anymore, right? It's interesting, in chapter 23, we won't look at this passage, but David will actually come out of hiding for just a moment. In chapter 23, news will come to him that there's a city, an Israelite city, that is uh, being laid waste to by the Philistines who are attacking, and he will come out of hiding to save their lives, and he does save their lives. He's victorious in that battle with he and his 300 men. They're victorious in that moment. And to say thank you, the city does this. They let Saul know where David is. And David has to run from his life from the very people that he had just saved, right? I think by this point, when we get into Samuel chapter 24, I think David is just done, right? He's been on the run. He's lost every support system he had. He tried in a moment in the last chapter really to make a good move, to think not about himself. And that didn't go so well, right? And so in chapter 24, it's going to open with him running to the mountains, And by the time we'll end this, we're going to see David and Saul. Actually, by the time we end our chapter this morning, we're going to see David and Saul hugging it out, all right? By the end of the chapter, all right? Elsa and Anna fashion, all right? But since this isn't Disney, that peace, that harmony is going to last for about one verse, all right? Because this is real life. That's how conflict often happens. It gets resolved until the next time where there's going to be trouble, all right? That's where we're going to head this morning. I think 1 Samuel chapter 24 is a wonderful passage, actually, for us as we think about conflict. Specifically, what I want to highlight for you guys this morning is, in a sense, a few uh, obstacles to avoid as you enter into a conflict and how you are to respond to it, and then a few behaviors to embrace. A few obstacles to avoid, a few behaviors to embrace. So that's where we're going to head this morning. And as we jump in, we're going to kind of start off with the obstacles. Chapter 24, verse 1. I want to kind of read you guys the text. We're going to go through verse by verse this morning. Chapter 24, verse 1. We find now, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then David took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel, and he went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. 
We've been following through the series on David so far this spring. And really what we're going to see as we kind of walk through is we're going to see David portray humility in a cave. He's not necessarily going to start off that way. We're going to see him in that way, all right? And really, as we kind of begin, I want to highlight for you guys a few obstacles to avoid. And the first is going to be this issue of community gossip. Notice verse 1. Saul is pursuing the Philistines, but someone is going to tell him, hey, David is over here. And so Saul is going to get distracted from the priority and the pursuit that he was on so he can go deal with David, who he feels so threatened by. And so he's going to reroute himself and his 3,000 men to go pursue David. But it's not going to be just David and Saul, but realize this was a personal conflict, all right? Uh, A conflict that broke out between Saul and David. Saul was incredibly jealous of David. A conflict that was really personal really does not stay personal at all here, right? Saul is going to bring 3,000 men into this personal vendetta and conflict that he has with David. Most conflicts often, uh, it's really difficult to keep them private and keep them personal, which is why so many of us fall into this issue of gossip. And someone's going to speak to Saul, which is why Saul will, dr- will reroute himself. And then also, I want you guys to notice here in a few verses that David himself is going to have his own soldiers, his own people in the midst of this conflict. A very personal conflict is going to break out that's going to become a civil war in the nation of Israel. This issue that was personal does not stay personal, but it breaks out and it escalates, all right? In fact, notice the text in verse 3. Notice what happens next. Saul came to the sheepfolds on the way and where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. (laughs) This is why I think the Bible's so fun. All right. Uh, Literally, Saul is looking for David. He's on the move and nature strikes. It calls. There's no call waiting for nature, right? And so he's got to relieve himself. And so he goes into a cave where he thinks he's alone. Verse seven is going to tell us that when Saul's done doing his business, he's going to have to arise, which I'm going to put two and two together and tell you, I think he's taking a dump right here, all right? Uh, He's pooping. He's in the middle of this magical, mystical, personal moment. And he's not alone. He's not alone at all. In fact, he's got a whole peanut gallery behind him and he has absolutely no idea what's going on behind him. But David is not going to let even this personal moment for Saul stay personal, all right? Some of you guys grew up in, in homes where your bathroom was kind of an open door policy, which actually bothers me to this day, all right? I married into one of those kinds of families and it just still boggles my mind that doors would be left open, all right? But for some of you guys, this is no big deal. You're like, oh, people around, so be it, all right? For me, I'm like, this is freaky crazy. Uh, David and his men are right behind Saul as he's doing his business. And David and his, their men are going to stick their nose in what was not their business and they're not gonna come out smelling like roses, all right? Notice the text. You guys notice the pun there? All right, come on. Verse four. The men of David said to him, behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you. Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. David's men provide him counsel. Counsel in a conflict that was not their conflict, but David had made it their conflict now. And not only that, but their counsel stinks as bad as what they're actually smelling in the moment, all right? Their counsel is worthless, all right? The very thing that they say God had said, we actually have no biblical support for that whatsoever in the Old Testament. We don't have any account. That's what God had actually told David at all. What they're doing here is they're twisting the truth and they're trying to move David to a place in this conflict that was improper. One of my favorite passages comes in Proverbs chapter 26, speaking of this idea of gossip. In the Proverbs, uh, the writer says this, that for lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisper, contention quiets down. But when we begin to bring people into a conflict that is not their conflict, it has no bearing, it has no relation to this conflict actually dying down. All it does is it fans into flame the conflict even more. (laughs) I want to ask you guys, as you think about the conflicts that are in your life or the conflicts that you've experienced or the ones that you're experiencing right now, (laughs) 
whether you are the party that's in the conflict or whether you are a party being invited into the conflict, do you often find yourself in a conflict that is not yours? You often find yourself counseling people or as we Christians love to do, submitting prayer requests that really are just gossip, right? <laughs> you won't believe what's happening to me with this friend and roommate, right? And they know the roommate, they know the whole situation and now their whole view of that roommate's colored by what you have told in your own side of the story, right? See, we have a very human tendency to invite others into the conflict to take sides. And what ends up happening is that conflict then begins to mushroom into a nuclear kind of cloud, all right? So you guys, uh, my junior year, I lived, or my sophomore year, I lived off campus in an apartment. And uh, one of my roommates got into a little bit of a prank war with the girl above him, all right? I couldn't tell if they were flirting or what was going on, but she had a boyfriend, so I was kind of always a little bit worried. Uh, but as you might suspect, all right, this little prank war didn't just kind of stay personal between the two of them, but eventually, as it escalated between the two of them, it roped in the roomies. And now it was our conflict, right? Which meant it just kept escalating further and further, right? What began with just the two of them got all of the apartments, and this thing became an apartment versus apartment prank war, all right? And these girls, God bless them, but at some point, they thought it was a fabulous idea to put tampons, maxi pads, and Vaseline all over our door handles and our cars. And for us guys, we're like... <laughs> And that's gone too far. It's on. It's so on. And so, man, we waited to the perfect moment. The, the fall semester was wrapping up. We were hanging out with them, seemingly like everything was okay. Uh, and they kept their little keys on a little key hook by the front door. And so we did what any group of guys would do. We saw an opportunity and we struck. I said I had to run an errand. I grabbed the key, ran to Home Depot, made a copy, came right back like nothing was happening, all right? Let them leave for winter break and then went into their apartment. All right, I know we probably broke some laws. It's probably a statue of limitations, all right? So I'm probably okay, don't report me, all right? But here's what we did, all right? We went in and we started in their bathrooms where we put two years worth of lint in their bathtubs, all right? Awesome, right? Then we unscrewed the shower heads and we packed Kool-Aid in the shower head. Then we bought like a hundred rolls of yarn, all right? And we yarned their apartment where we tied like a piece of yarn to one thing across the room, back across, back across, where you literally could not even walk into the room. So then you had the rooms that came into the living room and in the kitchen, which is where the front door would kind of enter into. And then we took like 150, 200 Dixie cups, all right? Put them side by side, filled them with halfway through milk, all right? And in mid-December, cranked the heat up, closed the door and said, Merry Christmas, all right? <laughs> One of the girls would come back early because she was having some problems with her boyfriend. So she would come back early to kind of sort through that issue. And she came into town directly to him at a park where they hung out. That conversation didn't go so well. They basically broke up, all right? So she comes back home to an empty apartment where she's hoping she can relax and where she finds what we've set the trap for her, all right? And so she's crying, emptying out spoiled milk, all right? Gets to the yard where she has to cut it, finally gets to the bathroom, empties the linen out, and finally thinks she can relax, wash it all away in the tears, and then Kool-Aid in the face, all right? I'll tell you guys, I've never felt so proud of myself, all right? I've lost all respect, I know, all right? But here's the deal. Most conflicts that are between two parties don't just stay between two parties, do they, right? No. You begin to rope in other people and that thing begins to mushroom and grow and grow before things begin to take shape and they begin to move way beyond anything that was proportionate or appropriate, right? That's what happens, all right? For David and Saul, this conflict that was personal will explode and go beyond them, all right? And then it's going to move, when it begins to move that way, what ends up happening is that one party is going to want to have a direct attack. Saul and his 3,000 men are going to show up into the Engedi, the foothills of the Engedi, looking for David, and they want to go toe-to-toe to destroy him, right? Saul already showed us from a few chapters earlier when he was throwing spears at David, he knew all about the direct attack. 
Saul doesn't mix words. He wants to destroy his opponent and his adversary in a conflict. He has no basis for trying to maintain the relationship. See, the reality is in most conflicts, you can be factually right and maybe win an argument, but you can actually lose the relationship in that moment. In fact, notice what's going to happen. It's not going to be just Saul that's going to want to throw spears. Notice in verse 4, David's men have said, hey, this is the day that the Lord has given you. Let's go take Saul out. All right? Notice what David does. Verse 4 again, he says, uh, then David arose. Saul's still doing his business, all right? And he grabs his knife, I think you can, you can assume, and he goes and he cuts off, all right? The text says he's going to cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. We'll talk about that in a minute, all right? But imagine if you're David's men and you're watching David. You've just counseled him, go take Saul out, one of these numbers, all right, that you're not allowed to do in college football, all right? That's what, that's what they're telling David to do, all right? He grabs his knife, he's walking towards Saul, and you know the men are thinking he's going to take Saul out. This is our moment. We're going to be finally freed from this conflict, freed from the tyranny of this evil king. Let's take him out. This is the day. God has made it. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, right? And David stops short. He doesn't take Saul out by the neck. He takes his robe and he cuts off a little piece of the, the garment and he walks back. <laughs> he stops short. David's men begin to freak out, right? Like, what are you doing? This is our golden opportunity. How do you not see the sovereignty, the sovereign hand of God here? And he walks back and he has to appease them and quiet them down, all right? And Saul then will walk out. David's going to do something. I'm going to talk about that here in a minute. But David will not go the way of Saul. What you're going to see David do here is he's going to go a different direction, but he will not go the way of Saul. He will not go about with a direct conflict. He does not directly attack. He does not want to take the guy out. And for many of us, why does David do that? Why is that good counsel, all right? Some of you guys may know uh, chapter 12 of the book of Romans. Paul writes, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Romans 12, verses 17 and 19. I think David recognized what Paul would write centuries later, all right? (laughs) Vengeance is the Lord's. David will not take vengeance upon the Lord's anointed, which who at the time was Saul. He won't do it. He realizes that you do not return evil for evil. You do not blow up even when a a wrong has been done. You do not, two wrongs don't make a right, as our moms would say, right? David grasps that. He would not learn the ways of Saul in the midst of this conflict. He chose not to. He's going to go a different direction we'll talk about in a minute. But I want to imagine for you guys, and we've all been in those conflicts that are reoccurring. We've all been in those situations with those people that absolutely irk us. And so we begin to build a script in our mind, right? All the things we would love to say (laughs) in the right moment. And we begin to play this dialogue over and over. We begin to perfect it. We begin to deepen it. We begin to lengthen it so that when the right moment comes, we're going to take that person out in the midst of our conflict. Every single one of us has been in those situations of, oh, what I would say if I could give them a piece of my mind. Some of us have the restraint to never go there, but some of us have learned the hard way. (laughs) That's really not very fruitful at all, all right? Uh, I have a good friend whose brother-in-law had one of those moments. His brother-in-law had a kind of a tenuous relationship with his mother-in-law who always irked him, who always stressed him out, who always frustrated him. And so over over a year or two early in marriage, he began to build a script in his mind of what he would love to say to his mother-in-law if he ever had a chance, all right? And now we all know that you can say something about your mom, (laughs) but no one else can say anything about your mom. That's kind of how it goes, all right? And so this guy, uh, over a holiday stretch where family was hanging out a lot, all of a sudden his mom got to him, pushed the wrong button, and he teed her up, took his driver out, and just, boom, 300 yards down the middle of the fairway, laid her out. Said all those things that he had thought about he wanted to say, all right? And for about 5, 10, 15 seconds, I bet it felt exhilarating, right? (laughs) Felt awesome. 
But then when the bomb goes off and you look at the carnage around you that you got caught up in the wake of, you begin to realize this is not a good idea at all. Because the moment he finished, right, two seconds of silence before his mother-in-law is yelling at him, his father-in-law is yelling at him, his wife is yelling at him, and all of his wife's siblings are yelling at him, right? This did not go well. But we've all had that scenario in our minds that if only we had the courage, right, we would just blow that person up. The moment that many of us have actually gone there, we realize this is a horrible idea, right? Two wrongs don't make a right. Blowing up that person in a conflict to win an argument seems wonderful until you realize that you lose a relationship in the middle of that. I want to challenge you for some of you who are uh, a little bit like Saul, who do not avoid conflicts but go steamrolling right into them. Let me challenge you to wake up. That in the midst of that pattern that maybe you learned at home, you are steamrolling over people and you're going to be losing relationships left and right and marriage is going to be really, really hard for you. All right? Uh, For some of us, that's what we've seen. That's what we know. And let me just say, hey, take some time this afternoon. And maybe what you need to do this afternoon is think through, hey, who is it I have steamrolled most recently? And maybe what I need to do is I need to go and I need to apologize. (laughs) I need to sit down and say, I am so sorry. I was factually right, but I was relationally so, so wrong. And I need to apologize to you. Maybe you're in one of those conflicts right now and that script is rolling through your head and maybe you're just looking for just an opportunity to go off. (laughs) If only they say this, then I'm just going to go boom right there. Let me just say to you, think long and speak slow. Do not light that fuse because when that thing explodes, it's about 10 seconds of fun before you realize you may have a lifetime of carnage that you now have to deal with and dynamics of relationships that aren't going to change so fast. You can blow it up really fast, but to rebuild it takes a lot of time. That's the way of Saul. Some of you know the way of Saul, But some of you actually know the way of David. David's going to go a different direction. Saul is the guy who's entitled, who's been the older sibling, who's always got his way, and when he doesn't get what he wants, he takes it, right? Not David. David didn't grow up that way. Nothing's been handed to him on a silver platter until he came out of a sheep field out of nowhere, and the prophet Samuel anointed him. But up until that point, and even after that point, nothing's ever come to David easily. And so what David knows in the midst of conflict is not steamrolling people, but what he knows is passive aggressiveness, right? He knows the way of the indirect attack, all right? And that's what you're going to see from David here next. Notice what David does. He goes, he rises, and he cuts off a piece of Saul's robe, right? What's the deal here? What's going on with the robe being cut off? We know from ancient times, commentaries tell us that the robe for a king, uh, especially the hem of the robe, or the edge of the robe, had an incredibly ornate design that highlighted his status as king. It set him apart as king. It showed his right over the kingdom. And so what David does is he comes secretly in the dark where no one can see and Saul can't even notice, all right? And he cuts Saul's robe. He cuts off a symbol of what makes this guy set apart as king. And then he returns back to the darkness where no one can see and no one can hear and he lets Saul walk out and he never addresses Saul. Some of us know the way of conflict avoidance, right? We know the way of an indirect attack, which is exactly what David does here. It's never frontal, it's never clear, but it's in secret and it's hidden and it's subliminal And it's passive-aggressive. That's what Elsa does, right? She first explodes on everybody, and then she backs up and retreats to a palace of isolation where she just lets everyone else get frozen out, right? And that's what some of us do. Maybe we don't feel like we have the courage to directly steam ahead and communicate our mind, but we just retreat back in passivity and fear. But it's our own little act of rebellion. Uh, They won't get to have my friendship. They won't get to be blessed by my greatness, right? Because I'm going to pull back, and I'm going to make them suffer, but I will never say a word. And that is passive aggressiveness at its best. (laughs) 
That's exactly what David does here. He comes out, he takes his slice, and then he pulls back for Saul not to even know. And even David's going to have regret. Look at the text again, verse 5. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David knew that even that passive-aggressive move was an act of internal rebellion. Might not have been noticed externally, might not have been noticed on the surface, but he knew this was an act of rebellion. Uh, when I was early married, I had an opportunity to have one of these guys' weekends where I got away with a lot of my college roommates. Every year we call this weekend Man Mania, all right? Exactly. Uh, so we get away, and one of these years I came back, and so my wife, who was super great, was like, hey, tell me about your weekend. How was it? And so I'm kind of going off talking about it. And then as we're talking, kind of huddled up, cuddled up, she notices my ring is missing. And so I begin to think quickly, oh, dear gosh, right? It costs him good money, all right? Second of all, this, this is a symbol of our marriage, all right? And third of all, this doesn't look good to be missing on the heels of a guy's weekend, all right? Which I was in seminary, it's not like she really doesn't trust me, all right? But it's just this moment of like, this is a symbol. Its absence communicates a lot more than its presence sometimes, right? And so I begin to have this moment and I begin to kind of panic. Uh, and, and, and of course, you're first thinking, right? Any sign of defensiveness seems to be really, really sketchy, right? And so I just kind of get to panic, like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And I would eventually realize that the ring was just underneath the chair that I was sitting on, right? I was kind of playing with it in the moment and I lost it, all right? But see, certain things show a sign and a symbol of things. And often what we do is sometimes as we attack people, as we t- attack those symbols that don't seem to be such a big deal on the externals, but internally they're a big deal, right? For some of you guys, you love to retreat and pull back. For some of you guys, you communicate, but the way that you communicate is through sarcasm. Uh, I'm not an alcoholic, but if there's a bottle I like to go back to way too often, it is sarcasm. I need to go to something, all right? I, I, I just go there way too fast, way too quickly, all right? I love that. I think it's hilarious, all right? But the problem is even in sarcasm, which some of us communicate in, there's a com- communication that's occurring at a surface level that is absolutely benign and, and not too threatening, but underneath it lurks a whole another hidden meaning, right? One of my favorite passages, actually probably my favorite passage in this whole area, is Proverbs chapter 26, verses 18 and 19. Proverbs writes, Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, Was I not joking? Come on, have a sense of humor, right? Some of us communicate this way, right? We take a jab, and then we pull back and we retreat, and we just say, hey, I was just joking around, right? But there's some kernel of truth in the joke, right? Which is why we jabbed in the first place. I want to challenge you to think through, how do you communicate? In the midst of a conflict that heats up, in the midst of a time that you get stressed out or upset, how do you respond? Do you kind of go in the way of Saul, or do you go in the way of David? Do you go toe-to-toe in a direct conflict or do you tend to retreat and communicate passive-aggressively with meanings on the surface but real hidden meanings underneath? That kind of stuff will destroy a family. You saw it growing up. Uh, For me in college, it was the way I communicated with many of my guy friends because we were just dudes, right? We seemingly were not supposed to be so sensitive, right? So we would just mess with each other all the time. The reality is you begin to really uh, undercut the very foundation of communication, the very foundation of trust in that friendship, and it gets more and more superficial because you never will take the courage to communicate boldly and clearly up front. David's going to have a turnaround here about 180 degrees here in the next few verses because ultimately what David's going to have is a sense of regret here. He's going to realize he fell into some obstacles that he needed to avoid. And that when we directly attack or we indirectly attack, really it's all about preserving self. 
It's all about making ourselves look good. It is by nature a very selfish way of handling conflict. And what I want to show you is what David's going to do from verses 8 and on. He's going to respond very differently to conflict. Uh, He's going to repent. He's going to be regretful for the way he handled Saul. He's going to come forward. And he's going to show us a whole other method of communicating. A whole other method of handling conflict that is not about self and the preservation and protection of self. But it's a way to put self down and initiate and step forward in a way that takes incredible courage and incredible faith. I want you guys to see what, in a sense, David does here in verse 8, as you guys get a sense of a model of, for some behaviors to not avoid, um, some behaviors to embrace. All right, verse 8, notice the text. Now afterward, David arose and he went out of the cave and he called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the King. <laughs> Just a few verses ago, he's hiding, lurking, stealthily, right? Grabs the coat, cuts it, right? As an internal act of rebellion. Feels bad about it, right? His guys are getting incredibly frustrated that he didn't take Saul out. And now, just a few verses later, in the midst of that regret, he then steps forward and he steps out of the cave. Saul leaves the cave and then David is going to follow and he's going to step forward and he's going to call out after Saul. Well, basically what you're going to see here is you're going to see David initiate reconciliation. David is going to step forward. He's not going to stay in the cave. He's not going to stay in the shadows. He's going to step forward and communicate clearly. And he does it to no sense of preservation of self because this is an incredibly risky move. Saul's got 3,000 soldiers that are right out there. David just took a passive-aggressive stab at him, and what he's going to have to show Saul here in a minute is, hey, I cut off your robe, and I'm sorry. But he's going to step forward, and he's going to call Saul, the guy who's been trying to kill him, my lord, the king. Whoa. And then notice what he does next. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground, and he prostrated himself. Man, what an incredible turn of events. Just a few verses. One of the things I want to highlight for you guys is as you think about initiating reconciliation, what David does is he steps forward in person and he communicates in person. And I can't say that enough. For some of us, when we finally have the courage to step forward and take a risk to initiate reconciliation, to say, I'm sorry, we typically do it by one of a series of ways. Text, email, Facebook, whatever. All right? And we begin to build patterns of communicating that really allow us to stay safe because I don't have to worry about how the person is going to respond in person because that seems scarier. What David does here is he steps in person and he communicates apology and he falls on his sword and he falls down on his knees. So let me just say to you guys, as you think about communication, let me take a quick aside here and just say, I want to challenge you, and especially in conflict, communicate in person. It is so much more effective, right? Let me kind of illustrate this for you guys, all right? Here's a few text conversations that have occurred between different people that highlight for you guys how messed up conversations can get, all right? Here's a, here's a daughter saying to her dad by text, mom wants you to get her prego as in pregnant. Dad takes that and says, well, I can't. I had that problem solved years ago by a vasectomy, all right? Uh, Daughter says, oh my gosh, dad. Ah, TMI. I will forever be grossed out. Mom wants you to get her prego pasta sauce, all right? The cooking thing. And he goes, oh, okay, sweetie, all right? (laughs) Imagine that text conversation with mom and dad, all right? Here's another one for you, all right? Uh, This may have felt like you're fresh from the air a little bit. I don't know. Mom texts her her daughter, hey, don't forget to unload the dishwasher. Uh, No response. Then she follows up, hey, did you finish your homework? No response, all right? Follows that one with, hey, we have to go to your um, grandmother's house for Thanksgiving. No response, just keeps waiting, all right? And then lastly, she texts the daughter and says, Dad and I talked and we are going to buy you a car next month. And she then responds and says, you are? Oh my gosh, thank you. In which mom says, no, we're not. I just want to make sure you were getting my text. That was cruel. Uh, I remember my freshman year in college, my mom would email a lot or call a lot. And man, it's freshman year, 
was glad to be gone, glad to be on my own, right? I had a lot of things going on, right? I uh, was not quick to respond, all right? And then I'd always finally eventually get one email that was just simply uh, a few words, and it was just this, are you still alive? Uh, whenever I got that email, I was like, oh dear gosh, I've really fallen short of what her expectation is for communication, all right? So one of the things I want to say to you guys, even as you think about initiating reconciliation, even as you think about communicating, is there is no substitute for in-person communication. Whether you're asking a girl out, gentlemen, or whether you're saying I'm sorry, gentlemen, because we're always the problem. I'm just kidding. So here's the deal, all right? I think there's a tendency for many of us, we just like to hide behind text or email because it seems safer. It's less risky, all right? But notice how risky David takes a step here, right? After cutting off Saul's robe, a guy who's been trying to kill him, he emerges forward and he says, I was going to say, I'm sorry here in a minute, but he refers to him as my Lord and Savior, my Lord and Savior, my Lord and King, all right? And then he bows down on the ground, all right? Incredibly exposed and vulnerable posture and position, all right? And when you're the first at the table to say, I'm sorry, it's always incredibly risky, always incredibly exposing, right? In fact, notice the text, notice where it goes next. Verse 9, David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you. Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. I pity the fool. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father, what a, what a comment of affirmation, right? The very guy who's been trying to kill him, who's not his father, right? Now my father see. Indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. Know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. David initiates here, and he puts himself in a very prone, very vulnerable, very risky position. And that's always the case when we're the first one at the table to initiate reconciliation. Either we seem oversensitive or we lie ourselves at risk of someone else blowing us up to smithereens. But this is the posture of David. This is where David matures to. This is what David realizes as he walks it through. And the last thing I want you guys to see in terms of David's response is not just that he initiates reconciliation. That's really not about him, right? Because there's really no way to defend self here, right? He just lays his own right down. He lays his own life down in front of Saul. There's also another thing that he lays down. He lays down the right to vengeance. Notice verse 12. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. Verse 15, the Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. The reality is if we're the kind of people that love to steamroll, or we're the kind of people that love to conflict avoid, either way, we land ourselves in a position that only God has. Only he's the judge. Only he has the right to avenge, and when we come forward and we directly attack, we are trying to seek vengeance. Or when we avoid and we freeze everyone out, that's another kind of vengeance that's being sought. And I both lay us in a position that we begin to act as only God is called to act. And neither are a godly response to conflict. In fact, especially as you avoid conflict, what you end up doing often is that you end up pulling back and you begin to marinate on your hurt You begin to marinate on your frustration, your anger, and it just grows and it grows and it grows and it mushrooms and it mushrooms and a script begins to play in your mind of all the things you'd love to say if only given the chance, if they only just tick you off one more time, right? And what we don't realize is that process for many of us is absolutely killing us. That when we've not learned to let go of the conflict, to let go of self-right, to be heard when we don't let go of the the right to protect self when we don't let go of vengeance what we're doing to ourselves is killing us 
One of my favorite quotes comes from a guy named Frederick Buchner, and he says this, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. All right. Amen. All right, here we go. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect, just the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback, though, is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. And the skeleton in the feast is you. I think for many of us, we don't get that. You know, I don't, I don't want to at all belittle or gloss over that some of you guys have walked through some experiences in your past that were incredibly scarring and hurtful. And frankly, there's no way ever to come to you and, and let you know there's a good in that moment. It was evil that you experienced. My question, though, is as you walk out of that and as you walk away from that, maybe some things that you've been carrying for a lifetime, the question is, what do you do with it? What do you do with it? If vengeance is not appropriate, then what do you do with it? If vengeance is inappropriate and avoidance is inappropriate, then really for many of us, we just sit and we marinate in that hurt. We marinate in that uh, experience we had as a victim. And we've not learned how to move on. And the reality is, it hurt us then and it's continuing to hurt us now because we're just consuming ourselves whole. My challenge to you is in the midst of those kinds of moments, you have to come to a place that only God can bring you to when you realize that he can move you to a place to forgive and to let it go. Elsa's going to sing let it go, but what she means as she begins that song is nothing close to what it really means to let go of a conflict and to seek reconciliation. That to let it go means that you will not seek vengeance and that you will let God deal with that person in his time and in his way, trusting that God has it and he has it under control. And that what God can do as you begin to let that go is that he can begin to bring about a transformation in your life and a sense of freedom that maybe you will always for the rest of your life have a scar that you will deal with. But he can move you to a place of wholeness, a place of freedom from that experience that you're not still marinating it and living on it and feasting on it and the feast is you. In fact, I think for me, one of the beautiful images of this whole story is that what's going to end up happening is that David's response to Saul is going to allow Saul to experience forgiveness, maybe in a way he had never experienced it his whole life. And the response is going to bring about a transformation that you cannot grasp. Because when you and I have grasped forgiveness, it brings about a change in our lives that is absolutely transformational. Notice the text, and this is where we're going to end, verse 16. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? Wow. Then Saul lifted up his voice and he wept, and he said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you've dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with you. You've declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. You extended to me grace and forgiveness, what I was not due. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good and return for what you have done to me this day. Verse 20. Now behold, I know that you will you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. And that was the very issue of their conflict. The very issue now gets resolved and Saul comes to a place that he could never have come to apart from the grace and the forgiveness that David extended to him. Verse 21. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. Verse 21 ends with this amazing agreement between David and Saul that was unparalleled in that day. Saul says, you know what? I recognize you are going to be God's chosen king in a day to come. And this kingdom is going to be yours. And when God brings you to that place, will you not kill my descendants? 
Well, you would continue to extend to me grace and mercy unlike any other king in that day would have done. David extends Saul the kind of forgiveness that maybe he had never experienced before, and the result was transformational for him immediately in a moment. I think forgiveness is one of the most powerful things that until you've experienced it, you have no idea of its impact. For some of you guys, you have some things in your past that you are still struggling with and you are still holding on to. And the reality is you will never be able to let those things go until you experience the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. In many ways, David is a forerunner here of the kind of forgiveness that Jesus Christ will extend to us. The reality is that we were in a conflict with God himself, that we had transgressed the laws of God, that the relationship we had with God was divided. (laughs) Romans will even call us enemies of the cross of Christ. But what does Jesus Christ do? The forerunner, the one who will come after David, he will lay his life down so that we can experience a kind of forgiveness and grace that we can find nowhere else. And the results of that, for those of us who know Jesus Christ, is absolutely transformational. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ, I will assure you there's no way you're going to come to a place where you can extend the kind of forgiveness that we're talking about this morning. It takes an experience of forgiveness for you to begin to learn how to extend forgiveness. And the kind of experience we find in Jesus Christ becomes a picture of reconciliation that is not just a model, but is transformational. That what David does here is the same thing that Anna does for Elsa. When Anna lays her life down at the end of the movie, a sword is coming at Elsa. And Elsa sees that picture of forgiveness and it completely saves Anna's life and it saves Elsa's life. And it completely sends Elsa on a whole new trajectory for the rest of her life. See, when you and I have experienced the forgiveness of Christ, it completely changes everything. So my question for you is, even in the midst of the conflicts that you're in, how does the forgiveness that you found in Jesus Christ begin to show for you and highlight for you a whole new model of response, a whole new trajectory of response? We're not just called to go and forgive, but we're called to go and forgive as Christ has forgiven us. He's not just a model for that. He's the means for transformation in that as well. That's my hope for you. What we're going to do the rest of our morning is give you guys an opportunity just to respond in worship. And I want you guys to come before the Lord and I want you to really have an opportunity to meditate and go, hey, what are the conflicts that I find myself in? (laughs) What are the issues that are unresolved? Where am I responding ungodly in a way that God might be calling me forward in a different kind of way? I want you to have an opportunity to meditate fully on really what has Christ done? What does the cross represent for us and how does it begin to transform us and call us forward?